You are listening to Sunday Gospel Reflections, a podcast made possible through the work of the Institute of Catholic Culture. I'm Father Hezekiah Carnazzo, founder and executive director of the Institute and your host for this program. In this podcast, we'll explore the historical and literary context, themes, and significance of the readings for the coming Sunday. This podcast was originally recorded as a video. For the full viewing experience, please visit us at instituteofcatholicculture.org. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life, come and dwell within us, cleanse us of all stain and save our souls, O good one. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome back to all of our participants here for our Sunday Gospel Reflection for the 28th Sunday in Ordinary Time, in which the church places before us the theme of the wedding banquet. Well, hello, Annie. How are you today? It's good to see you. It's good, to, it's good to see you too, Annie. Uh, let's go ahead and give our participants our biblical texts. Everybody got your Bibles, notebook, pen, highlighter, and uh, away we go. There is a lot to discuss yes. this yes. time around. That is for sure. Okay, our first reading for the 28th Sunday in Ordinary Time. Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 through 10. The responsorial psalm is Psalm 23. The gospel is Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 14, and the epistle is St. Paul's letter to the Philippians chapter 4, verses 12 through 14, and then verses 19 and 20. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Isaiah. Here we go. Isaiah 25, verse, starting with verse 6, yes. Let me know when you're ready, and I'll get started. Okay, I'm there, I'm there. Are you guys ready? You there, Frank, Joe, Mary? I can, I'm watching you, people. Okay. All right, here we go. Isaiah, watching me too. Isaiah chapter 25, go ahead, verse 6. All right, here we go. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will provide for all peoples a feast of rich food and choice wines, juicy, rich food, and pure choice wines. <laughs> You like that? <laughs> the translation is a little, a little funny. <laughs> Juicy. Yeah. Go ahead. On this mountain, he will destroy the veil that veils all peoples, the web that is woven over all nations. He will destroy death forever. The Lord God will wipe away the tears from every face. The reproach of his people he will remove from the whole earth. For the Lord has spoken. On that day will it be said, Behold our God, to whom we looked to save us. This is the Lord for whom we looked. Let us rejoice and be glad that he has saved us. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain. Mm -hmm. All right. The first question I have is, what mountain are we talking about here, Father? Oh, excellent. This is a great question to ask. Um, and it's an important question to ask because it helps us understand this entire business 
in the larger context of salvation history. We spoke about this, I think, last week or the week before about the importance of seeing all of salvation history in terms of Eden to Eden, about God's yeah. plan for mankind. Very important to realize that um, and to remember that the Jews believed that Jerusalem was the original location of the Garden of Eden. Okay. Now, what does that have to do with this text? Well, Jerusalem is a mountain. Yes. We know that the Garden of Eden was a mountain because rivers flowed out of it. Right. Yeah. And so we have to understand the vision. When we're, when we're reading the Old Testament, especially in the New Testament, we have to understand the vision of the people that are hearing these texts, okay? And how they understood what would be taking place when we're talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, when we're talking about the vineyard of the Lord, when we're talking about the marriage feast, when we're talking about God providing a banquet, yeah? All of this is to be understood in terms of, of God's plan for mankind and our rejection of that plan and our ex exile from paradise. So, of course, paradise was filled with every good thing. Yeah, it was there that Adam and Eve were meant to eat from the tree of life and live forever. It was there that the river of life flowed through the garden. Yes. So it, from a biblical standpoint, from a standpoint of the kind of, of the church of the Old Testament and their vision of what God was doing in their lives, they saw themselves as very much falling into sin and, and being cast out of their father's home, paradise. And then coming back to that home and being restored to all those things which God had prepared for them. Yeah. We talked about that again the last couple of weeks, just a little bit, that every time you have this movement of salvation history, the garden kind of starts to come back again a little bit in the story. Like there's little sparkles of the garden, if you will. Every time God's people reapproach him in repentance and are restored to the promised land. And so biblically speaking, when we hear a text like this, we have to see, we have to read it properly and see it properly as, as Isaiah's way or God's way of revealing to his people what the restoration is going to look like mm -hmm. and what, or I should say that the restoration is going to happen because they know what it's going to look like, right? So when, when he's saying, I'm going to do these things, the people are saying, paradise, paradise, restoration, <laughs> yeah, restoration of my relationship with God. But we have to take this one step further regarding this mountain, and that is to turn your Bibles with me. You can keep your hand there if you want in Isaiah 25. Turn your Bibles with me very quickly to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. One of the names of this mountain, one of the ancient names is Moriah, Mount Moriah. Okay. And you, you pick that up in chapter 22, verse 2. This is the story of Abraham going up the mountain to sacrifice Isaac. Now, I can't, we, we can't spend too much time on this. However, it is to this mountain that he goes up, and it's here on this mountain that he is to offer his son, his most, most valuable thing, right, if you will, to God. And it's here on this mountain that God intervenes in that offering. And, and notice verse 14. So in verse two, it was just to mention Moriah there, right? But in verse 14, so Abraham called the name of that place up on the mountain. Yeah. The name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Now notice the similarity in language. If you just hold your hand there and turn back to Isaiah 26. 
on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for his people, or that's in my RSV, but in your translation here in the, in the New American, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will provide for all his people, okay? Kind of get, gaining that, that sense of, of this, this, this language from Abraham. I'm going back now to, Isaiah, to Genesis chapter 22 the, and verse 14 again. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said, today. Okay? Now, the, the word for provide in Hebrew is yira. Yira. And there is another name, another ancient name for this mountain. If you turn with me, and we can go ahead and turn away from Genesis now to Psalm 76. Psalm 76. Are you with me? Not yet. Hang on. Oh, come on. You guys are going to move faster than that. I Lord know. Of Sorry. Yeah, it's okay. In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. His abode has been established in Salem. Okay, there we have it. Well, where is Salem? Now, hold your Bibles here. Go back with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 3, 2 Con Chronicles chapter 3, chapter 3, verse 1. Okay, this is going to tie all this together for us, okay? okay. Then, are you with me? Yep, I'm here now. The Sol then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, okay? This is the same mountain that Abraham is called to, right? In Genesis chapter 12 is the same mountain he goes to uh in in genesis chapter 22 to to offer the sacrifice of his son and here the two names come to, to come together mount moriah mm -hmm. and this name salem from psalm 76 which means mm -hmm. peace shalom salem yeah peace uh and now we have the conjunction of these two yara yira or yiru salem Okay, Jerusalem. God provides peace. The Lord provides his peace. That's right. Wow. That's the name of the city. And that's what Isaiah is talking about. Why did Father Hezekiah go on this absolutely ridiculous side Bible study with all of us? Because it's critically important to understand what Isaiah is saying here in, in chapter 26, that on this mountain, the Lord is going to do this thing. Why is that important? Why? Because they believe this mountain to be the original location of the Garden of Eden. And they're looking forward to the time when God will intervene and not only destroy the Babylonians, but destroy the enemy of mankind, which is death. death. Right? Death is the enemy. Babel, the Babylonians are just the ministers of the devil. Do you see, you see this? So when, when the restoration happens in the prophecy of Isaiah, when the restoration happens after the Babylonian exile, once the city's burned to the ground, when God does intervene, he's not going to just bring back Hezekiah, although that would have been pretty cool. No, <laughs> he's not going to just bring back, you know, bring back the, uh, yeah, yes, but, but, but he's not going to just bring back. And we've talked about this before. The earthly reign of the Davidic line. Yeah. He, I mean, he's going to do that, but he's going to do more because when it's when that earthly line is restored, God is going to be restored to the earth, and on that mountain, God is going to provide a feast 
by which mankind will live and never die. There's a reason why Jesus went to Jerusalem for the Last Supper. And there's a reason why this text is picked up in your Bible. Hold your hand there. Flip with me to the book of Revelation. Chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. Are you with me, Annie? Verse yep. 1. <laughs> then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Yerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared. Now, hold on to this now. Ooh. Because it ties us to our gospel, doesn't it? Yeah. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, who's the husband of the bride? Now, even, well, we can take this another step forward, right? Jerusalem right? I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride. Wait a minute. How has a city become a bride? Because, because just as we were talking about last week, the garden or the vineyard becomes a symbol of the people. So the city becomes a symbol of the church. Nice. Yes. The church of the old Testament and the new. And hold your hand there one second. Hold your hand there for one second and turn with me to Jeremiah 31, 31. I, I'm crossing all over the place here, guys, because we're now, I hope, in this hour together, we'll rise above our normal Bible studies and start to see the really the bigger picture, okay? Jeremiah 31, 31. You with me? Yep. Behold, the days are coming. This is Jeremiah's prophecy of Isaiah, right? They're basically, right? They're both like... When it happens, this is what's going to happen, right? And Isaiah is like, a feast is going to be held. And Jeremiah says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers when they took them from the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant, which they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. So you see, Israel is the bride. This is how, when Jeremiah talks in his lamentations in verse chapter one, verse one, the same thing, right? Going back then. If you held if you held 22 uh, uh revelation 21 in your hand if you didn't and you don't want to turn there i'll read the rest of this passage to you and i saw the holy city the new jerusalem coming down out of heaven from god prepared as a bride adorned for her husband and i heard a great voice from the from the throne saying behold the dwelling of god is with men right where's the dwelling of god well the dwelling of god is is on the mountain on jerusalem right or, or, or more originally it's in the garden right on the top of that mountain where god walks in the cool of the day and I heard a great voice saying, behold, the dwelling is with man. He will dwell with them and they shall be his people. And God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eye and death shall be no more. Boom. Book of Revelation, Isaiah, Garden of Eden, Jesus. It's all one story. It's all one book. It's all one revelation. It's all one reality. And that is that God is love and love is the giving of our life to the beloved and when this happens the two become one flesh my brothers and sisters theology is not hard we make it hard but god makes it really simple he loves us wants a relationship with us he wants to be one with us so that we might have what he has namely eternal life annie that's my answer to your question what mountain? Wow. Um, 
I almost want to say no more questions, Your Honor. I mean, you um, that you was can also go listen to our talk um on the institute website called Eden to Eden: The Garden, the Temple, and the Catholic Church. Make sure it has that subtitle. I've given out forty-five different talks on Eden to Eden, which are all different topics <laughs> over the over the years. So make sure it says the Garden, the Temple, and the Catholic Church. Okay. Nice. Nice. I'm just curious. There, there have been other feasts on this mountain before, correct? Yeah, I can. Okay. Yes. Okay. I and and you know the truth is that Annie's really nice, and she puts together little notes for me. And I thought that was really nice of her. I'm going to give you what Annie Mitchell wrote down for me. Okay. Second Samuel. You guys write this down. We're not going to go there, but you guys write it down right now because this is a great little Bible study, little research. Uh, Second Samuel chapter six. First Kings chapter eight, my favorite. Second Chronicles chapter 30. You have to go there to find out. And second Chronicles chapter 35, but maybe even better than that, guys, maybe even better than that is my final passage before we move on. And that is in the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 13, Numbers chapter 13. This is the time after Israel crossed the desert before the 40 years of wandering, but they were still standing at the edge of the Holy Land, and they sent spies into the Holy Land to see if they could conquer it, right? They leave Egypt, they come across, they're standing, they're standing on the edge, and they send in these representatives, these guys to go in, 12 guys, one to represent each tribe, and to find out what's going on in this land they're going to conquer, because they don't know... They, they, they can't remember how the mountains and things like that they've been in Egypt too long so here is Moses chapter 13 verse 17 I'm gonna skip a few verses here 17 Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and, and which is the promised land right in the so you can say look like the capital city is representative of the whole area so similarly Jerusalem is representative of the whole area the garden and the whole area right so I'm going to enter into the garden if you will the area of, of the promise. Okay. And uh, go up to the Negev yonder and go up to the hill country and see what the land is. I'm going to scan down to the end of that paragraph, verse 20, whether the land is rich or poor, whether it is wo there's wood or not, be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now stop for a second. You know, Oh, Hey, I know too much to know that, that, that you know, to miss this point that they're going to grab some fruit from the very land where Adam and Eve were meant to pluck from and eat right and, and live forever so check this out now the time of the season was the first ripe grapes okay and so verse 23 and they came to the valley of eshkol and cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes and they carried it on a pole between two of them have you ever seen a cluster of grapes so big that you had to carry it on a pole between two guys Okay, so this happens over and over again. When the people of God uh, approach the land, all of a sudden the land starts transforming into the garden, flowing with rivers of milk and honey. Yeah, um, this happens in the time of, jo of Jonathan, uh, the son of Saul. He goes, he's walking through the forest and then he sees a pool of honey. You ever seen a pool of honey on the ground? And he dips his he dips his uh his his staff and he eats it and it says his eyes became started shining like you know so so now you i hope all of this is like ding 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 because you, you should be understanding all of this of course not only in terms of the garden but ultimately the garden 
right? The restoration of all things, which we have inherited. It's not by accident that Jesus said, take and eat and you will live. This is God's original plan that this whole created order would be divinized and communicate God's life to us. This is what happens on the altar. This is what begins on the altar because this is God's original plan. Okay, enough said. Well, I don't know. You might have other questions or other things. Well, no, uh, we can move on to the responsorial psalm because I think I've never read Psalm 23 quite the same way when okay. coupled with Isaiah here. Yes. Like, it's so beautiful this no, way. No, I, I agree, but I, I got to go back because oh, I just okay. realized I had a beautiful quote from St. Cyril of Alexandria. I'm just going to share with you a couple words and I don't want to miss it. So he says this, the prophet indicates that, that they are all but pointing to Christ with their finger. It, that's the prophets, right? They're pointing to Christ. Um, and then he goes on, he says, they confess that God will rest on this mountain. And it seems to me that the mountain here refers to the church. Okay, and I'm gonna stop there. Because now, now the fathers of the church are going, hey, all of this is, is to fulfillment, right? All of this is, so when we're going to go listen to Jesus in the gospel now, it's going to, it's going to open up for us. Okay, let's take a look at Psalm 23. Go ahead, Annie. Yeah, well, I mean, I was just saying, I, I haven't, I don't know. It's something about reading Psalm 23 in light of what we were just reading in Isaiah, this prophecy that just, I don't know. It, I, I just think yeah, it's not this like the cute little shepherd with the, you know, I mean, it's, it's like yeah. the fulfillment of Isaiah. I shall live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want a verdant pasture. He gives me repose. Besides the rest of water, he leads me and refreshes my soul. What are you thinking of right now? No, God, no. Not your grandmother's funeral. Okay? I know that this is the normal context in which we hear this psalm, but it's not supposed to be the context in which we're to understand the psalm. It's read. It is read because this person is now going to receive their reward. Yeah. It shouldn't be reminded you of the death. It should be reminded you of the life. The verdant pastures which God has prepared for us, a restoration of paradise. Yeah? And re this is a good opportunity for us to remember that when we're reading the Psalms, we need to be reading in light of David's life, right? David is the is the is the uh, is the author of the Psalms, or at least most of the Psalms, and so we do ourselves the initial step that we we have to do to 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 get this right is to always be asking yourself what this would have meant to David and to those he was writing, right? Beautiful words from Father Ronald Knox. He says this: the Psalms of David are, as it were, the church's nursery rhymes. It is on that music that she falls back for consolation. The Psalms of David, we call them. Learned people would have us believe that this is a false title. The collection is only an anthology of various authors. It certainly does seem reasonable, saving the better judgment of the church, to suppose that a psalm written about the Babylonian captivity was written, was written by somebody who had experienced it. But even if you allow for that here and there, common sense tells you the bulk of the Psalter is King David's work. In the first place, because a, lit a great literary tradition does not grow around a man's name unless he really has something literary to some literary work to his credit. Imitators do not arise until there's something to imitate. You can trace David all through the Psalms as Gerda's work is full of Gerda. David's work is full of David. You're haunted everywhere by the echoes of his breathless career. 
by association, the Psalter has become a great organ of human sentiment upon whose stops the Holy Spirit varies the modes, the moods of divine melody. Imagine for a moment a devout Jew reading the Psalter, reading the same phrases that you read. Think what those phrases mean to him and what they mean to you. Thus, each of us, as he goes through the Psalter, can trace in it a kind of secret code, a cipher by which God and the soul speak to one another. Okay, so context. Let's just very quickly turn back to 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 16. Are you with me, Annie? Okay, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul, seeing I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go, and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. Okay, Bethlehem. There's a reason why Joseph has to go to Bethlehem, because he's a descendant of Jesse, right? Um, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel, so then, so he goes, okay. Now Jesse lines up his boys, right? He pulls out Luciano. He says, Luciano, stand in the front. Carlino, stand next. Vincenzo, stand next. You know, and, uh, and uh, oh, yeah, Alonzo and, uh, and Vito. Okay, I almost lost the names of my kids. Okay, oh, down the run. Go stand in a row, right? And then he pulls what he does is he says, okay, okay, uh, Samuel, here's my son, Luciano, right? So here it is in verse six. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on the appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. The Lord sees not as man sees, but looks on the outward appearances, but the Lord looks on the heart. Okay, and so forth. So now he goes down the, the, the run of, of sons, right? Luciano, Carlino, Vincenzo, Alonzo. And he gets to the Alonzo, and Samuel says, this isn't the one either. Or the Lord tells him, not this one. But there's no one else in line. So now Samuel turns back to Father Hezekiah and says, do you not have any more sons? And Father Hezekiah says, yes, well, there is the smallest, Vito, right? The little and then, one. And then, so look at verse, look at verse. He's out 11. playing with the fish in the river. Yeah. And yeah. Samuel said, verse 11, and Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains he the youngest, but behold, he's fishing in the river. No, behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and fetch him, for we will not sit down till he comes. He sent and brought him, and now there was, he was ruddy and beautiful, and his eyes and handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him. Just like me. Yeah. Okay, so there. I hope no. I hope that didn't come across as like messianic uh, <laughs> uh, complex thing. But uh, yeah, you got to make it real for yourselves, right? So, yeah. so, so, where's where's the little boy? He's out by himself doing the work while his lazy brothers are sitting around playing the Nintendo, right? And imagine that he's out there by himself in the woods. And the sun is setting, because this wasn't just today. It was been happening all the time. His brothers are lazy. He's doing all the work, right? And as the day completes, the sun sets. And as you know, you've been camping, you've been hiking. There's all of a sudden, the animals start moving, right? And the boy's by himself. And he was afraid. Now, now you can read Psalm 23 with prophet. The Lord is my shepherd, right? He's a shepherd boy. Lord, take care of, he's, he's like, taking care of his sheep, right? Take care of me. 
I shall not want. In verdant pastures, he gives me repose beside the restful waters. He leads me. He guides me in the right path for his namesake. Even though I walk in the dark valley and the, and the squirrels and the mountain lions and the all around, right? I, I, don't, I, don't, I trust you, Lord. I'm, I'm not going to fear that anymore. I trust you. In those dark moments, when his brothers had abandoned him, David turned to the Lord. He was a man of prayer. This is why the Lord chose David, because he understood what it meant to shepherd his sheep. It was a matter of calling the Lord to protect him and to protect his, his sheep. And now this is how David is to rule. Yeah. And, and of course, now you spread the table before me in the sight of my foes. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Only goodness and kindness follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord for years to come. There it is. It's very beautiful, especially in light of paradise and the restoration. As David is drawn close to the Lord, as that oil anoints him. Yeah. Notice, I love this language. I love this language. You anoint my head with oil. Okay, look, I've got holy oil here. This little vial. This is not what they're talking about. It's the oil which ran down the beard of Aaron and even to the hem of his garment. They would pour oil over the head of the person to anoint them. Their face would be glistening with the life of God as they are called to restoration in paradise. Yeah, notice as David draws close to the Lord now, the table is, is, is richly laden, yeah? And the garden is restored, the, the verdant pastures. Super cool, super cool. Well, let's keep on this banquet theme as we uh, move into the gospel for this weekend. Matthew chapter okay. 22. Here we go. Matthew 22. Give me a break because I got to get over there myself. Matthew 22. And here we go. I'm there. 22 verse 1 through 14. Yes. <laughs> Annie, you'll have to say what you said earlier yeah, to me. I'll let you know what. Yeah. I'll let okay, go ahead. Matthew there 22, is an, one there's an optional way to read this passage, which. A shortened version. Kind of laughable. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. We'll, we'll get to it. Here we go. Jesus again, in reply, spoke to the chief priests and elders of the people in parables, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be likened to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. He dispatched his servants to summon the invited guests to the feast, but they refused to come. A second time, he sent other servants, saying, tell those invited, behold, I have prepared my banquet. My calves are fattened, cattle are killed and everything is ready. Come to the feast. Some ignored the invitation and went away, one to his farm, another to his business. The rest laid hold of his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged and sent his troops, destroyed those murderers, and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the feast is ready but those who were invited were not worthy to come. Go out, therefore, into the main roads and invite to the feast whomever you find. The servants went out into the streets and gathered all they found, bad and good alike, and the hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to meet the guests, 
he saw a man there not dressed in a wedding garment. The king said to him, my friend, how is it that you came in here without a wedding garment? But he was reduced to silence. Then the king said to his attendants, bind his hands and feet and cast him into the darkness outside where there will be wailing and grinding of teeth. Many are invited, but few are chosen. <laughs> and just as a note, as we were saying, um, the shortened version ends, the, the shortened option, shorter option ends with verse 10, which is basically, and the hall was filled with guests and just leaves just out the gnashing, wailing and gnashing, gnashing of teeth. Nice, there you have it. <laughs> but okay. All right, well, let's we get our bearings here in terms yeah. of what is going on with Jesus. Of course, we've talked for the past couple of weeks now that we're in the midst of Holy Week, and he's taken off the gloves with the chief priests and the elders and the like. Yeah. And and we've talked every week about how they're out to kill him. We know it. Yep. Matthew tells us that. So yeah. why is it that they keep letting him tell these parables? Sure. If you haven't been with us the last few weeks, you've got to go back and read from verse 20, chapter 21. Okay. From chapter 21, you're going to get this context. Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. Palm Sunday has taken place. And now we're during Holy Week. And Jesus keeps going to the temple and just pulling off the gloves and socking them right in the face. And uh, and you can see that over and over again. Look at verse 32, chapter 21, verse 32. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe in him, but the tax collectors and the harlots believed in him. And even when you saw it, you did not after repent and believe in him. So he's, boom, and then he goes, and then I'll tell you another parable. So it's, they're seething, they're angry at him, right? And then he, he tells them another parable about the vineyard, right? And then verse, look at verse 43. Verse 43, therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing fruit, fruits of it. Verse 45, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. You, you know, and, and then chapter 22, verse 1, and again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying the kingdom of heaven may be compared to, and now we have our text. And then notice at the end of this text, we finish with the gnashing, the wailing, the, on the, uh, verse 14, many are called, few are chosen. Verse 15, we do not get, ready? Then the Pharisees, having heard this, went out and took counsel how to entangle him in his talk. And they sent their disciples, their disciples to him along with the Herodians. That's the, you know, Herod's guys, right? So th these guys are in, boom, they're in cahoots with Herod. They are going to try to get this guy. It's all planned. It's all, you know, the, the whole thing that happens when Jesus is arrested, that was all mapped out. That was all planned. Yes. And uh, and these guys are sitting around. So that's what's going on. Jesus has pulled off the gloves and he's just, boom. He's no longer telling parables that are not understandable to the crowd around him like he was up in Galilee and then having to explain it to his disciples quietly. No, he's come out. He's telling parables that use imagery from the old testament during the babylonian exile and then if that's not bad enough he says i'm talking about you you are doing this right and there it is boom right there at the end then the king said to his attendants bind his feet and cast him in the dart outside where there's way in the ash of teeth okay so they know 
that he's talking about them. Okay. And they see, they see Greeks and all these guys come into him, right? This comes out most uh, strongly. Just hold your hand there for a second. Flip over with me to the gospel of John at the story of Palm Sunday. John chapter 12 is right after the raising of Lazarus and uh, Palm Sunday, verse 18. So we're in the same kind of time frame right there, right? Verse 18, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard what he had, that he'd done the sign. That's the raise of Lazarus. The Pharisees then said to one another, you see that you can do nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So again, this isn't nice Jesus in the temple with like a few people staying around. The temple is, it's a, it's completely crazy in there. It's, 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 it's it's like, I mean, you see this stuff, forget about, you see the Pope going places, all these people and all like that. It was way more intense because they weren't in a stadium. They were in the temple and the temple wasn't that big. The temple precincts were not that huge. And Jesus walks into Jerusalem. The place goes crazy. Jerusalem is just this little, little mountain. It's, it's, it's not even a, it's a hill. And so like the, the, the people were just jammed there for Passover. And all of a sudden Jesus walks into this craziness and they're, they want to get near him. They want to be healed. They want to hear the teacher they've been hearing about. And the Pharisees are going crazy. And then Jesus just starts going right after them, calling them out of the crowd for what they're doing. And that's the co- kind of that, that context. Now, well, Annie, you're supposed to ask the questions and I will try to answer. <laughs> well, I think this comes out in, in Matthew 21, verse 46 as well, right before we start here. It says, but when they tried to arrest him, they feared the multitudes because they held him to be a prophet. There it is. Yeah, there it is. The multitudes. Yeah. So get your, get your, and, and imagine the temple with the sacrifices, but then the, with the blood oh, flowing through the yeah. things and it stunk and it was, Ugh. the place was a riot. An absolute, yeah. And that's, and Jesus had just walked in there, of course, in chapter uh, 21, verse 12, Jesus walks in. And that's, he does his second turning over of the tables, right? Mm-hmm. So he walks into the madness and just starts, I mean, oh, could you imagine being there? I mean, I'm Sicilian. So I'm like, yeah, <laughs> there's my man. Yeah, so, okay. They're right there with him. And now that's he gives this place. teaching and we ought to take a look at the parable. Yes. So why, so you, you went through these, these parables that we've been, you know, covering the past few weeks, the vineyard parables. Yeah. Why does he move to, I mean, I guess we kind of got our answer in Isaiah a little bit here, but why, why now is he moving to a parable about a wedding feast? What, they, un, they under, look, if he's the Messiah, if he's the Messiah, then what Isaiah said is going to happen, right? And, and I'm not just talking about the last supper. I'm talking about the, the mystical supper of the, of the Eucharist, right? There's a reason why in uh luke picks up an acts of the apostles the whole conversation among the jews about whether the guys are drunk mm. because joel had prophesied that the, the mountains would be flowing with wine yeah this is the, the paradise imagery coming out is not only for us who are like oh cool garden of eden they were expecting a full-blown restoration of the way things were supposed to be when the Messiah finally came, it had been 500 years since a king was on the throne. In those 500 years, the imagination of the people had kind of gotten riled up. Yeah. And now Jesus is expecting, is he the one? 
Is he the one? I mean, if he is, look what's going to happen. And they knew how the prophets had spoken. So that Jesus then talks about his wedding feast because this is how the prophets had all talked. Right? They had said all these things. So when Jesus starts talking about it, they've got all this stuff in the back of their mind. And now Jesus is going to say, yeah, but there were people that abandoned the wedding feast back then too. Right? It's all that context is swirling around this of what's going on. Okay? So, but we have to remember, very importantly, as we're looking at this text, the kingdom of heaven is not something far off in the distance. I said this many times. I just have to say it really quick again. Anybody knew. This is not like the kingdom of heaven off in the distance with the fat angels floating around in the clouds. Okay? The kingdom of heaven understood in a Jewish mindset, and it should be our mindset too, is, is the presence of God on earth ruling as king. The restoration of the kingdom of heaven is an earthly reality. The, the new Jerusalem came out of heaven and landed on earth. There's a joining together of heaven and earth. The dwelling place of God is with men, book of Revelation. Yeah, so the, get this idea of this, this dualistic idea that we have, that heaven is this thing I'm going to go to after my life. Either you go to heaven now or you ain't going to heaven anywhere at the end of your life. Yeah. Right? Uh, either you're going to live in the kingdom now or you're not going to the kingdom then. Yeah. Okay. Well, I want to get back to that point in a minute because okay. I think there's Sorry. a lot of I practical, I think there's a lot of application there for yeah. the church today, but you know, I think it, it was last week, I think that we were talking about how we need to make sure that we look at these parables in a theocentric way. So mm -hmm. can you talk about this parable in a theocentric way? And then I want to talk about all of these people that aren't coming. Um, I certainly can. I mean, I, I, obviously, obviously, the, the one calling the feast is God, our father. Right. And the one getting married is is the Lord. Right. And the bride, of course, is the church. Yeah. Which is the kingdom of heaven on earth built out of living stones, right? We are the vineyard of the Lord. We are the fruit of that vineyard and we are the ones meant to till and keep it, yeah? We are the ones invited to the wedding feast and being built up into the kingdom of heaven. I mean, we can we can do this very quickly to look at two quick passages, okay? The first is in St. Peter's epistles. Let's just turn there. I didn't even write these down. Um, in in uh first peter uh chapter two first peter chapter two verse four it's right near the book of revelation go backwards yeah mm -hmm. first peter chapter two verse four come to him to that living stone rejected by men but in god's sight chosen and precious and like living stones be yourselves built into a spiritual house yeah, so this is the house of God. And we're going to look at finally at the book of Revelation again, chapter 21, in this description of the new Jerusalem, which is the bride, right? In verse 9, and in verse 10, the holy city Jerusalem. In verse 14, and the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So there you go. So the whole thing, what they see in Jerusalem is meant to be incarnated, no longer built out of dead stones. That's the result of the fall, but out of living stones and living vines, 
with living fruit, with wine that bears eternal life, and bread which gives eternal life, and water which gives eternal life, and oil which begins eternal life. It's the restoration of all things. The kingdom of heaven is the church. And the middle of the church who reigns. I love this. In, our, in the Byzantine tradition, though, over the whole church, there's a big dome. And painted in the center of that dome is an icon of Jesus reigning over the church, the king of the kingdom. Yeah. So here we are. So, so yes, I think we've talked, Annie, enough about that for now. But sure. maybe we can get into some of the imagery used here and who these people are and who yeah. and so, the wedding garment and so forth. Yes, yes. Well, okay. So as I'm reading through this parable, I'm tracking with Jesus, you know, okay, here are the bums that, that, you know, are more interested in their money and their jobs and stuff, don't want to come. And then, you know, the, the really bad ones that are just mean, to say the least. (laughs) <laughs> and then so like all these people get invited in and I'm like, oh, great. This is the grand all come to the feast, you know, like this yeah, is it. The party, it, 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 come on. The party is rocking. Everybody. Yeah. Toto, Toto, Toto. Yes, exactly. Everyone. Yeah. Come on. Exactly. Okay. And then this guy, you know, gets invited yeah. in. You know, I like this story. Yeah. They invited him. Invite in. You know, he was expecting to be invited to a wedding, and he doesn't have a wedding garment. And you know, okay, yeah. granted, I don't really understand like first century Jewish culture, so I don't even know what a wedding garment is in Jewish culture. But and whether they would have them like you know at the ready in such a way. But I'm telling you, I am not somebody that gets dressed up very readily. So like, I'm always walking around in jeans and- and Well, that could be the first problem. Well, maybe it is, it's possible. And maybe that's why I identify with this guy. All right, Annie. What, this seems so mean. He just gets thrown out. What is going on here? Let's let's talk a little bit about this, about the the, the different people, about the imagery that's being used here. The first thing, the first thing is the fathers of the church tell us and commenting on this passage that of course, those invited to the feast that didn't come and busied themselves with their own business were the Jews, the unworthy Jews who crucified Christ and remain today outside the church. And if you want to go back and just have a little reference to this to understand that they would have understood what Jesus was saying, you want to go to the prophet Haggai. I'm not going to have you turn there right now because otherwise we're going to run out of our time. Uh, the prophet Haggai, you're going to read chapter one and you're going to see this exact thing, right? Mm-mm. They come back from Babylon and the people of God busy themselves about their own business, their own houses. They leave the house of the Lord in ruins. And therefore, they end up in, a, um, there's there's a famine in the land. There's no food, right? There's no banquet. And so they would have understood Jesus's words very yeah. clearly because this is exactly what Haggai talked about. Hmm. But of course, there's more here. And when we get into this issue of the invitation, yeah, the invitation, of course, is to all peoples. But the invitation is to all peoples is to live a life suitable for the house of God, not to come into the house and live in a way that is not in conformity with the father's home. This is the story of salvation history over and over again. They're in the promised land. They don't live according to the way the father's home and they're cast out. This is all given to us in terms of a garment, right? Because in those days, you're thinking this is rather tough, Maybe the guy didn't have enough money. I mean, he goes down to Macy's, right? And 
in uh, Hebron, right? He goes down, he travels to Hebron, he goes to the Macy's there, or Mervyn's, or Sears, or something. And he goes, he's, I, I, I need a suit. And the guy at the thing says, okay, it's going to be, you know, it's this is after COVID and it's cost a lot more money. It's $500 for a suit. And he says, wait a minute, it was only $200 last year. Yeah, but it's post COVID and President Biden's now president and inflation's out of control. So uh, here we are and uh, it's 500 bucks. I can't afford 500 bucks. <laughs> can't do anything about it. Now he goes back to the wedding. This is not the case. In those days, the family of the groom was tasked with providing everything necessary for the feast. Oh, yeah. okay. Okay. So in this case, it's a little bit different than the story of the wedding at Cana. Because the wedding at Cana, the groom there, his, his, the wine fails, which was an embarrassment and would have opened up the family, the groom's family, to a lawsuit from the grieved, the bride's family, right? Oh. The covenant lawsuit of the Old Testament. Wow. And of course, Jesus steps in there and then does for the old bridegroom, Adam what he should have done, right? He becomes the new Adam there at the wedding at Cana. And the, of course, his his bride, if you will, or is the queen is the Virgin Mary, right? Yeah. Representing the church. Wow. And, but here it's different. Here the king invites them in and in knowing the culture would have provided for all that which is necessary for the feast, right? There's everything is there. Everything's laid out. Everything was provided for the feast wow okay but this bum this bum left the wedding garment at home wow yeah but wait a minute because jesus is talking talking about wearing jeans jesus is talking about something much more than that the fathers of the church tell tell us he's talking about the robe of glory our baptismal robe as they apply this parable to the church now of course Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, Jews around him aren't following him. And there he's, he's talking about how they're acting in a way that is not in conformity with the law of Moses, in which they're seeking to kill him without a trial. Yeah, they're breaking the law of Moses. They're morally corrupt. They know they are. They're in with the Herodians. Yes, he knows who they're talking to behind the scene. They're the ones coming without the wedding garment, ultimately. But as the fathers of the church tell us, that this all is applied to the life of the church. And the garment of this man who was invited in is the garment of sin that he wears, the garment of vice versus the garment of virtue given to us on our baptismal day, and again, the fathers of the church now take this and they talk about this to talk about how it is that when we sin, we our baptismal garment becomes stained and torn. That you know, it's the baptismal garment was just some little thing you put on the you know, for God's sake. If I ever see again a baptismal bib, my head will blow off. I, it's not supposed to be a bib. It's not, I mean, have you seen these things? Okay, it's a garment of grace, which is symbolized by the baptismal garment because Adam and Eve were not naked before the fall, the fathers of the church tell us. They were clothed in the grace of God. And at the moment of the fall, they cast off their robe of their father, prodigal son, and they were they looked and looked, they were naked. They were without the clothing as sons and daughters of God. They were without the father's garments. 
and therefore they found themselves naked. Jesus came to reclothe us with the baptismal robe, which is the robe of grace. Yeah. And that robe gets stained and torn through our sins. And it is sown and it is made more beautiful through our virtues, the the, the moral life, right? The the wedding garment or the the you know is has pearls and and, and diamonds and, and these are the virtues the fathers tell us that are that we that we sow into the baptismal garment, into that garment given to us on the day of our baptism, going to holy confession fasting, working on the spiritual life, our baptismal garment becomes beautiful over time. This is how this is how St. Paul talks very quickly in Galatians. Turn to Galatians with me very quickly. Galatians. I didn't write this down, but it's going to be right there. Galatians chapter. There it is. Chapter 3, verse 27. Galatians chapter 3, verse 27. Are you with me? Galatians chapter three, verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized, as plunged into Christ, have put on Christ. Do you see that? It's the garment of grace, the garment of our sonship. We are not sons of God. We are not Christians. And so this is how the fathers kind of interpret this, this text for us and say, and remind us that not everyone that prays, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But those who do the will of his heavenly father, those who act out, who live morally according to the guidance God has given us. I'll leave you with this thought. There's an old saying that, that, is, that is when you die, you can't take anything with you, right? But this is not exactly true. For on the day of our death, we take with us a life well lived a garment that we have sown over the years through our acts of self-sacrifice, our acts of virtue, that we might present that garment before the Lord pure and undefiled. And this is how the fathers of the church now apply this passage to, uh, to Christ and for the deacons that are listening to me right now. I know there's a lot of deacons that listen to this commentary and use it for their homilies. You can steal that one and I won't charge you for it. Well, to then look at our epistle just quickly before we close up shop for the day, Father. Annie, I think we're out of time. I think, but but let's let's have St. Paul have the last word. Go. Let's read. Yeah. Let's let's see. Right. This is our conclusion today. Go yes. ahead. All right. Philippians chapter four, starting with 12. Brothers and sisters, I know how to live in humble circumstances. I know also how to live with abundance. In every circumstance and in all things, I have learned the secret of being well-fed and of going hungry, of living in abundance and of being in need. I can do all things in him who strengthens me. Still, it was kind of you to share in my distress. My God will fully supply whatever you need in accord with his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father, glory forever and ever. Amen. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to have to say one thing because it's very beautiful how St. Paul talks about how the Philippians are providing for him much. And I just was thinking about this much like the wedding, our wedding garment is provided for us. Right. Yeah. And isn't that true in the, in the virtue, in the spiritual life and our virtues and in our vices too, that those around us kind of help us weave our, the garment that we, that we live, yeah. right. The garment of our life. And here, 
um, here uh, St. Paul's talking in a, in a, um, in a material way. Um, it was kind of you to share in my distress, right? I've learned the secret of being well-fed and going home and living in abundance. And so I can do all things in him who strengthens me. Still, it was kind of you to share in my distress, right? To, to, to reach out to me, to help me. Yeah. And I, I will leave, I'll, I'll take this opportunity to say oh, a conclusion about the ICC. That as we are learning together, as we are growing together as a family, as our benefactors are providing to be able to make this Bible study and all that we do possible, uh, all those who enter into this mission, who support this mission are doing just this. You're helping to weave garments of grace for those that are receiving the truths of our faith through our many beautiful teachers here at the ICC on, on behalf of our entire ICC family, to our benefactors. Thank you for the gift of the garment of grace that you have helped us to weave in our life. To Christ our God be glory both now and ever and into ages of ages. Amen. Thank you for joining us for the Institute of Catholic Culture's Sunday Gospel Reflections podcast. The Institute of Catholic Culture is an adult catechetical organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. I invite you to explore all we have to offer, including over 900 hours of on-demand catechetical opportunities, and sign up for our upcoming events by visiting instituteofcatholicculture.org.